What a joy it is to come into another Lord's Day to worship and praise the God of heaven to celebrate the death of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, for our sins upon the cross, His glorious resurrection, triumphant ascension into glory, and the prospect and the hope of His coming again. It's a beautiful Lord's Day here in California. It's a joy to welcome you today. Thank you for joining us. Very kindly, I want to remind you that this is not Super Bowl Sunday. This is the Lord's Day. And one of the reasons we are under the judgments of God is because we have prostituted the Lord's Day for other purposes. I heard on the news this morning that a hundred million people will be watching the Super Bowl today. Would that a hundred million people were seeking the face of God today, things would be different. This is the Lord's day. We are the Lord's people. We are rejoicing in heart and filled with praise and thanksgiving. Our verse again, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. And I will heal their land. Precious promises from a great God whom we've met to honor and exalt today. We are observing the Lord's Supper at the close of the service today. In fact, the message is a part of that observance and so be, please be prepared for that so that we can join together uh, in our observance of the Lord's Supper. The reading of God's Word is tremendously important. It's important that God just speaks directly to our hearts, from His heart to ours through His inspired Word. So if you take your Bible and turn in your Bible, please, to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. And from this wonderful psalm, we shall hear the voice of God speaking directly to our hearts. Psalm 46, the entire psalm, as Pastor Pelletier leads us in reading that today. As we read Psalm 46, we come on a word called selah, which means stop and think of that. It reminds me of a song Dr. Phil Schuler used to sing. Well, think of that. And uh, that's what we will be doing as we read from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. The heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved, he uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord. What desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the ends of the earth. He breaketh the bow, and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Be still, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. 
The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. May God bless the reading of his word. I hope that you get the outlines each week. Again, there is so little time we have in church services and the maximum profit is of great importance. And I trust that you will be able to read along in the notes and see where we're going. You'll profit more. It'll be a greater blessing to you. And so print them up or some of you just take your cell phone out and find them there. However you do it, if you can, follow along with the notes. We are observing the Lord's Supper today, and what a celebration it is. Uh, there are so many various aspects to our relationship with God and to his great salvation, uh, how he saves us and, uh, and, uh, the various, and the various uh, aspects of that relationship because of what he has done. So we've titled our, our meditation today, The God Who Is On The Sinner's Side. Think about that for just a moment. God on the sinner's side. Now, the fact that you're a sinner means really, really that uh, you are against God. You are doing things that uh, dishonor God, that displease God. Sinning, of course, is is a dishonoring of God. And uh, so when, when you're in that position as a sinner, how in the world can God be on your side? Now, I, did I catch your attention with that question? Sin is the opposite of righteousness. God is for righteousness. God is against sin. Sin is offensive to God. Sin dishonors God. How in the world can God be on the sinner's side? Now think that for a moment. Give me an answer if you would, please. How is it possible for God to be on the side of sinners? Because actually it would be like God being on the side of his enemies. Or on the side of those that are not doing what he wants done. So how can we say that God is on the sinner's side? Well, there is one word that is involved in the preaching of the gospel that explains it, if you will, please. It's the word repent or repentance. In repentance, we acknowledge that God is right and we are wrong. And repentance puts the sinner on God's side. Let me repeat that. Repentance puts the sinner on God's side. If you've not repented, you have not gotten over on God's side. Repentance is an absolute necessity for salvation. Repentance is not a work that saves you, but God cannot save you unless you decide that you're going to get off the opposite side. You're going to take the position not of an enemy, but a friend of God. You're going to move over in your own life and disposition. So repentance brings us over to God's side. Now, when we are over on God's side, it doesn't mean we're living a perfect life, but when, that, when we receive Jesus as our Savior in repentance, we move, move over to God's side of the issue, then God is on our side in a commitment that is totally unbelievable. It's incomprehensible as well. Incomprehensible as well. So, may I say this? It matters not how bad a sinner you might be or consider yourself to be. If you in repentance will acknowledge that your sin is wrong and wicked, and you will move over to God's side and say, Now, God, I want you to change that and change my life so I can live in your will and honoring you. If you will move over through repentance to God's side, then God can be totally on your side. 
It is not that you are able to make this happen. You're not able to change your life. You, you are not able to, you, you're not able apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the regenerative power, the new birth power of the Holy Spirit of God that changes your life. You can't change it. But you can, you can acknowledge before God that God is right, you are wrong, and you want to change sides and be over on his side. That's repentance. And that's what brings us into the place where God can commit himself to be on the sinner's side. And indeed, that is exactly what God wants to happen. Now, I will ask you a question. If God didn't want that to happen, why did God come in the person of his son and die on the cross for our sins? Why was he buried? Why did he rise from the dead? Why? All of this, if God did not desire rather than to bring us to judgment, to bring us to life and to bring us to eternal life and justification. You see, the, the, the God is slandered, just totally slandered by the humanists of the day, by the pagans of the day. God is slandered by those who say that God is in the business of sending people to hell. He's not in that business. He's in the business of saving people. Amen. And when people refuse to be saved, they choose their own judgment. But don't blame God. Don't blame God if you ever perish. So, so repentance brings us onto God's side. And when we come over to God's side, then God, by the Spirit of God, changes our lives, gives us a new position in Jesus Christ, and he is on our side. Now, I'm looking at the clock. We're in trouble already with this sermon. But let's see how far we can get with it. I'll try to breeze through the first part of this. There are two aspects of this. When David was fleeing from Saul, and he was in Gath, as, as a part of just trying to, trying to escape from Saul and, and the armies of Saul, uh, they seized him there, and he was in danger of death at that particular point of time. And he wrote this psalm, Psalm 56, came out of that experience. And I want to look at verse 9. We, we don't have time to read the whole thing. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. Notice this tremendous statement. This I know, that God is for me. God's on my side. God is for me. He had great confidence in that. All the circumstances belied this. All the circumstances said, no, God has forgotten you. But David said, no, God is for me. And when I cry, he's going to hear my cry. And certainly God did exactly that. And he escaped from the Philistines in Gath. This I know that God is for, for, for me. Twice in the Psalms. Uh, in Psalm 46, the same statement, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, our stronghold. And there we have the word Selah, to which Pastor Pelletier referred in the scripture lesson this morning. Amen. In Psalm 118, the Lord is for me. This is getting personal. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Tremendous verse, and uh, we read a quotation or a certain form of this uh, in Hebrews chapter 13. The Lord is for me. And then we have the prophetic word in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 9. 
Be broken, O peoples, be shattered. Give ear, O all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Devise a plan, it will be thwarted. State a proposal, it will not stand. Why? For God is with us. God is with us. The one thing about the Jewish nation is its indestructibility. They are the people of God. God is with them. And with those who come to Christ and those who walk with God, God is with us. God is with us. Now, I've just uh, celebrated my 81st birthday. Amen. And when I say that celebration is a celebration of 81 years of divine goodness and divine grace and divine mercy, the tenderness the forgiveness of God, the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the protection of God, the faithfulness of God. And we've got to realize that God is for us. It is not because we never fall. It is not because we never sin. It is not because we never make mistakes. It is not because we never wander away. It is because that God is who he is and he is utterly faithful in who he is and in what he does absolutely amazing and I was meditating yesterday on my birthday the goodness of God the, the faithfulness of God through all of these years they've not been easy they've been extremely difficult but extremely blessed oh the blessedness of a walk with God so God is with us God is for us not not because of our perfections but because of his own divine perfections which cannot fail we sing that chorus, he cannot fail. Why? Because he's God. Because he is God. So there is divine deliverance from human circumstances. God is with us and God is for us. And it does not, it does not depend on the circumstances. It depends on who and what God is. God is on the sinner's side who has come to him and taken his side in repentance. Then there's divine deliverance from sin, eternal death, and the powers of darkness. We might well have read as our scripture left this lesson this morning from Romans 8. And I want to read this text because the whole text is very important to give us the context of the rest of the message. We know, we know with certainty that God causes everything, all things to work together for good. To those who love God and to those who are, now notice, called according to divine purpose. Called according to his purpose. And this is how it works. Before the universe was ever established, before the earth was given foundations, we as individuals by name were known in the heart and mind of God. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So that he, the Son of God, would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he called. These whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he also glorified. Now I want you to notice the progression here. Somehow we were known in the heart and mind of God by name. And God began to work in our hearts under certain different circumstances for each one of us at different times and stages of our lives. God did a divine work of grace. He called us by his Holy Spirit. And when, when we, if we responded in repentance, then uh, he, then further, according to his plan, he, he justified us. And then 
having justified us, this is not the end. The, the, next, the, the, the final step is to glorify those whom he justifies. God has all of this. We're called according not to our abilities and our religious capacities, not according to our own personal faithfulness. We are called according to divine purpose. What is divine purpose? It is to bring every one of his children into glory. This is utterly, absolutely amazing. How could me, yes, me, because when we get to the first point under this, God's love for sinners declared, God loved the God loves me. God loves me. God really loves me. God genuinely loves me. God has called me. God has justified me. And because of this, he's going to glorify me. God is on the sinner's side when the sinner comes over to God's side without exception. So, what shall we say to these things in verse 31? How does this work? If God is for us, who is against us? Now, the grammar here demands that we read it this way. If God is for us, and he is, and he is. You say, with everything God knows about me, yes, everything he knows about you. With all of my failures and frailties, yes, with all of your failures and frailties. If God is for us, and he is, who is against us? Who can stand against God if God is for us? That's the question. See? He who did not spare his own son, now here's the proof in the pudding, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Why, the God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Even more than that, now he's at the right hand. And more than that, he intercedes for us. He prays for us. I'm wondering, can we have confidence in his prayers? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. In all these things, verse 7, 37, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who, what? Loved us. I'm convinced. Death, life, angels, principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, any other created thing, none of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Does God really love you? One of the greatest joys in my life, and I grew up in a Christian home, found faith in Christ at the age of eight or nine, and went off, of course, to a Christian college and was a pastor for several years and I was sitting in my office one day, sitting at my desk, and I think I had my Bible open there. And for the first time in my life, I realized, you know, God really loves me. You know, you, you can say God loves you, and yes, God loves the world. God so loved the world. I preach that. I've told people God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. But for the first time in my life, the lights went on, and I realized God really loved me. You see, the reason I had trouble with that was because I knew God knew so much about me. And it was hard for me to accept that with what God knew about me, he could love me. I suspect you have the same problem. 
So, God loves me. Can you say in your heart and mind, God really does love me. God unconditionally loves me. If it weren't unconditional, he could not love us at all. Mm -hmm. That would not be possible. When we, when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, what does this mean? Is this some kind of a religious ritual? Or are we saying in our hearts, there is a God in heaven who really loves me, and if he didn't, he wouldn't have died for me. Why did he come and die for me if he didn't love me? And certainly he knew everything about me when he died for me, or he never would have died if he didn't know that I, that I needed, to, wow, somebody to bear my judgment. So you have God loving the world. But loving the world is one thing, but loving me, that's another thing. And that's just downright personal. God loved me. His love was demonstrated, point number two, in his death for me. Now, you remember, it was God the Son who died for me. It was God who died for me. We talked in a Christmas message that Christmas was the humiliation of God. His crucifixion. God being killed by men, the men whom he came to love and save. Dying on the cross, bearing a judgment for sin not his own. In our place. Taking our condemnation. Bearing the judgment and the wrath of God for our sins. That's the proof. Does God really love me? I love one of my favorite songs is that children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know. Wow, yes, Jesus loves me. And so he demonstrates his love toward us. He proves his love toward us. And the proof of his love toward us is his death for us which is inexplicable. Please explain to me how God would die for somebody like me. Please explain to me how God would die for somebody like you. Wow. But he justifies this. He justifies his love for sinners. In Romans 3, everybody sinned. All have sinned. They fall short of God's glory. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, the repurchase which is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth, he displayed publicly as a full substitutionary payment in full in his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Verse 25, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation. This is, again is a payment. This is a payment for sin in his blood through faith. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins committed for the demonstration, verse 26, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who hath faith in Jesus. He figured out a way. He figured out a way to eternally save me out of the mess that I was in. He figured out a way to take care of the sin problem. He figured out a way to take care of all of these things that in my heart and mind preclude his loving me, let alone saving me. Took care of it all. Propitiation. That's the full payment. I mean, that covers all the ground. That takes care of all of the negatives. That takes care of the attitudes and the dispositions and the activities and all. It takes care of all of, 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 
of that which is on the inner self that is so ugly. It takes care of all of that. He took it to death on the cross. He justifies his love toward us through his death for us, his propitiation for us, his full payment for us, his full purchase price that he paid for us to redeem us, to repurchase us to himself on the cross. So he has an absolute fidelity to sinners. This, this now, just look at that statement. Absolute fidelity to sinners, which means he will not fail. <laughs> he will not fail in, in, not only in his promise, but in his purpose. And we read in Romans of his purpose. His purpose is to call, to justify, and to glorify. He has absolute fidelity to his purpose and his plan. Romans 8.31, what shall we say? Well, if God's for us, nobody can be against us. That's what that says. Not sparing his own son, but, but, that's the adversative, but delivering him over for us all. How, how, how? This is the question. How is it possible for God to do the first without doing the second? All right? How is it possible for God to die and then not, and then not carry through on salvation and glorification? One is predicated on the other. It's not that, and it's not possible. Freely give us all things. And we get this verse in Hebrews, I will never desert you, and I believe that's double negative. I will never forsake you. We may confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? I will never desert you, I will never forsake you. God's absolute fidelity to his people and to his purpose is declared there. It's made real through the work of the Holy Spirit of God. In Romans 8.26, the Holy Spirit helps our weaknesses. And you'll notice literally there the definition of that word means to lend a hand together with someone at the same time. It means that he comes in our time of need and, and, and just brings us along to make sure that whatever is needed is taken care of. The Spirit helps our weakness. We don't know how to pray as we should. The Spirit himself intercedes for us. And that again, notice the definition, a word of rescue by one who happens on or happens upon another in trouble. And in his behalf, he rescues us as we don't know how to pray. We don't know what to do. We can't, we can't get ourselves out of the messes we get ourselves into. Mm. He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And you can be assured that if the Spirit of God is doing the interceding and our Lord Jesus is doing the interceding, there is no way that the Father ignores that. Period. Now, God's fidelity to sinners is defended. It's defended. He who did not spare his Son but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? God has a right to be on the sinner's side because he took us to death. He met all of the requirements for our, our relationship with God, for our sin to be totally wiped out. We, are, we stand justified, acquitted before God because of the work of the cross. There is nothing, there is nothing that can keep God from loving us eternally. There's nothing that can keep God from, from fulfilling his plan and his purpose in our lives. God is on the sinner's side. 
Now we 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 we're so aware of this this idea that we are sinners. <laughs> we do have a song in, in, in our hymn book, only only a sinner saved by grace. And that is true, but I'm more than that. I've been justified. I'm now a son of God, a daughter of God, a child of God by faith, a birthed one of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Absolutely amazing what has happened through the work of the cross. If, if this is not true, when we eat the bread and drink the cup in just a few minutes here, the, the, that is going to be totally meaningless. He who did not spare his own son, God is defending his fidelity to sinners. God can take the worst sinner in the world, and if that sinner will come over to his side, God can defend that sinner into heaven and reward him on top of taking him there. Absolutely amazing what God does. God on the sinner's side. God on the sinner's side. And then we find... And in Romans 8.34, that God's fidelity to sinners is rooted in the character of God and his righteousness. And we've already stated this in several ways. Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? And that, that means there is nobody. The devil is, can't do it. None of the demons of hell can do it. None, none of those of your own personal enemies who hate you can do it. Because Jesus Christ is the one who died. There is nobody that can transcend the authority of Jesus Christ in his work on the cross. Nobody. This is not possible. And not only did he die, but he was raised in great divine power. And then he was exalted to the right hand of God far above, Ephesians 1, far above all rule and authority and power. And in Philippians, given a name above every name. Things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth. So, God's fidelity to sinners is rooted in the character of God and his righteousness. And not only did he do all of these things for us, but he, he intercedes for us. <clears throat> and I love the note at the bottom, it's a precious thought. Rather than condemning us, he died for us. Now, you just think about that. God in his mind had two choices. Condemn us to eternal wrath in hell. Or die for us. Take upon himself the judgment. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. He had the choice between condemning us and dying for us. And he chose to die for us. And the only explanation for that is he loves us. Give me a, another explanation other than that. He loves us. He loves us. Rather than condemning us, he died for us and he was raised for our justification. For our sake, to whom righteousness will be credited as those who believe in him who raised our Lord, our Lord Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered over because of our transgressions and raised because of our justification. Rather than condemning us he died for us and he was raised for our 
justification. What a Savior. What a Savior. So we're going to gather together now, and if you're prepared to observe the Lord's Supper, we are going to give praise to God, and we're going to give thanks to God for this tremendous salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Before we do, I must ask you and prevail upon you to answer the question, have you in repentance come from your position of that of a sinner? Have you in repentance moved over to God's side? It doesn't mean you've changed your lives. It means you have acknowledged that God is right and you are wrong and you have received his son, Jesus Christ, who died for you as your your Savior. And he does the work in you and through you. You don't do it, but you, you must. You make that decision. You make that choice. You, you say, all right, God is right and I am wrong. My sin is wrong. My sin is wicked. And I'm going to move over on God's side and I'm going to let God have my life, transform it by his power. I'm going to become his child by faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to receive the Son of God as my Savior. Now, if you have not done that, do that now. <coughs> Just talk to God in your own words, in your own, in your own personal terms. Talk to God and say, now look, God, you are right, I am wrong. I am the sinner, you are God. I come to you in repentance, and I thank you that you loved me, you died for me in the person of your Son, and you rose again. Now, save me today, Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Savior. Come into my life and save me today. Now, if you're a child of God, oh, that the Spirit of God would open your eyes. Yes, Jesus loves me. He really loves me. He loves me in spite of everything that he knows about me. In fact, he knows things about me I haven't even discovered yet. It's much worse than you and I know it to be. And he loves me. He really loves me. And he proved his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For us. And because he died for us, He can be on our side. What a wonderful, wonderful Savior. Will you take your bread and your wafers and your cups and prepare so that we might together, we might together remember our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus when he was gathered with the disciples in that upper room and what an occasion that was you talk about an emotion filled filled moment wow he was the lamb of God who had not yet been slain when he was there but now he has been slain and we celebrate his death on the cross for our sins but 
we've got to celebrate the fact that he loves us and that he is on our side and that in his divine purpose we have a salvation that will be only completed when we reach a state of glorification. Seems impossible, but that's because God does it. It is impossible. With man it's impossible, with God it's not. And he embraces us completely in his love. He seals us while the Spirit of God and his purpose will be fulfilled. Jesus was gathered with his disciples there. There are two things that he did. In, 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 that were symbolic and in, indicative of his death on the cross as the Lamb of God. The first was he took bread and he gave it to his disciples. And having given bread, and they didn't take the separate bread like we have it, they, they took it off of the same loaf because all of our life comes from Jesus. He is our life. But Jesus took bread. He said, take, eat. This is my body. He was referring to his humanity. He was really God and he was really man. In his humanity he died for us and take, eat. This is my body. Now notice it's given for you. That's the personal thing. Does he really love us? wonder what the disciples were thinking when he said it's given for you given for you. Do this, he said now, to remember me. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup and he gave also of it to his disciples. I love this statement. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. His disciples knew that the pouring out of life in death was the only cure for sin. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's very personal. But when he uses the word covenant, that is a permanent, unbreakable agreement, contract. What words can describe the finality? The love of God will not know defeat. The purposes of God, the plans of God will not know defeat. They will be fulfilled. No one can stop it and no one can stand in the way. It is God who does it. So he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as every time you drink it. In remembrance.